Hello and welcome to Pictures and Popcorn. I'm Matt. And I am Lenny. And today we're going to talk about The Mandalorian. It's good, in case you didn't know. We're going to talk about that. But we're also going to mention a little sprinkling about the um, the new trilogy that came out that was recently finished off. And, um, you know, we'll, well, I'll leave that conversation for when you hear it in the podcast. And Matt's going to give me a nice little history lesson about some of the deep, dark lore that was within the Star Wars universe. So, like, ten minutes ago, I finished the last episode of The Mandalorian. Yep. And it was good? Good. It was It was really good. Yeah? Yeah. Um, so, obviously, this is it's been out for quite a while in the US, and it's only just finished now in the UK. You watched it alongside the US version, right? That I did. That I did. So, so how long ago was that? November, December. So, okay, so you've had a lot of time to reflect on this before this conversation. I am coming in very much fresh. Yes, yes. Um, this is obviously in light of, uh, let's not call it the elephant in the room, but the fact that the last trilogy that came out didn't exactly receive universal praise. Um, I want to talk to you about that completely separately and completely in depth, but it feels uh, wrong to not mention it just because it wasn't liked by a lot of people and i fall into that but not in the same way that a lot of the kind of the general consensus is i loved the stuff that happened in the the middle episode that ryan johnson did where he added a load of like kind of he subverted a lot of things which is kind of his shtick um which i thought was really cool and then it was undone in the last one so i'm i guess sat with a bad taste in my mouth from star wars literally just because i hated the newest uh, film yeah so that meant that my bar for what I was expecting from The Mandalorian was significantly lower than it probably would have been before episode 9. So I don't know whether or not that plays into this or not, but I thought The Mandalorian was really, really, really good. <laughs> yeah, I uh, I thought the same. I watched it because it aired, the final episode aired just before the release of Rise of Skywalker. So I watched that and then went into Rise of Skywalker like, yeah, and then came out like, ah... Because <laughs> I rewatched, you know, most of the series since then, and it still holds up just as much as it did on the first watch. Like I thoroughly enjoyed it. So, quick question: When okay. did you first watch the Star Wars films? Like any of them? What was what age were you when you first tried the Star Wars stuff? Okay, so um, probably around let's say six or seven, maybe I saw bits um i saw like the last few scenes of episode six um and i believe as soon as episode three came out on dvd whenever that was um i got it and watched that that was pretty much my first experience i think was episode three um and then i think maybe mid-teens i watched the original trilogy and what i thought was the prequel trilogy Turns out I've still not seen episode two. To this day, still not seen episode two. Um, and then I watched the new trilogy as as they came out. What What, what do you mean you've not seen episode two? <laughs> I've not what seen did episode... you watch instead? I didn't watch anything instead. I just thought that all of the stuff that happens in episode one was split across two films. Because I just assumed, because I have seen episode three, that I just, in my mind, connected the dots between, okay, so that happens in episode one, that happens in episode three. These little things that obviously, like... Um, Anakin goes through, I guess, adolescence, like, that must be, like, a time skip thing and whatever. Like, I just, I didn't realise that episode two existed, or at least that I hadn't seen it. All right. (laughs) So, I I apologise for that. (laughs) 
I just like the thought that you're like, yeah, I've seen the prequel trilogy. Oh, you watched all three films. Wait, what? <laughs> no, I thought I had seen all three films. Like, I just, I don't, I don't know what I, <laughs> like, yeah. Mm hmm. <laughs> okay. Fair enough. Yeah, for me, The Phantom Menace was the very first film that I saw in the cinema. Oh, you started low. All I can remember is the end credits. In my defense, <laughs> I think I was four. You, you didn't exactly have like a good gauge of what was good or bad at the time, but adults talking about politics probably isn't very high on a four-year-old's um, <laughs> radar of en enjoyment. Yeah, but like I'd seen all of them. Like I'd watched the original trilogy as a kid. Like my mum and dad had battered VHS copies that they'd taped off of the TV that we just watched over and over like i've got distinct memories of like our first well my childhood home watching it and then barely being able to see the screen because like the sun's going down and the crt tvs just can't fucking cope with that shit so yeah for me it's always been nice growing up and having new star wars content to enjoy especially when they announced the new trilogy with the disney acquisition it was like oh my god this is amazing like this thing that has always been there throughout my life so far is it's gonna carry on that's pretty great and especially with the series branching out into TV shows, like there was the original Clone Wars series that was sort of anime-esque shorts that were put on Cartoon Network at like the back end of a cartoon that was just too long to fill out the full slot. Mm -hmm. um, and those were like cut together to form like this big long movie. There wasn't much dialogue in them. And I think they were done by the guy who did Samurai Jack. They were very similar animation style. Um, and it blew my mind that it was like, whoa, it's Star Wars. It's a cartoon. It's on TV. This is sick. And then, like, I got older and I was like, yeah, that's cool. And they kept doing more TV shows and things. And it's just, it's nice to have that ever expanding mythos, I think, for something that's very, it's been effervescent. Yeah, it's it's nice to be embedded in a world that like that you're invested in because it like the the main films have this huge draw. They're part of like pop culture in its entirety, but also there's these nuanced stories from within the same world that you can just if you want to just bury your head within this world and just learn as much as you can. There is stuff out there for you to do that, and like there's comics and cartoons and yeah, and now a live action TV show. Yeah, the uh, the downside is a lot of it's not canon anymore, but yeah. I, I mean, you say that, but if you just take the new trilogy, again, don't want to jump into it too much, but the new trilogy has stuff that isn't canon by the end of the episode nine. <laughs> yeah, there's, uh, there's a fair few retcons in that. Yeah, a little bit. Thanks, JJ. So back to the Mandalorian. <laughs> back to the Mandalorian. So for me, the Mandalorian is, I feel like it's the best, piece of star wars media that's been produced since the disney acquisition christ that was a very that you were treading lightly with them words weren't you <laughs> like i grew up on the prequels so they've got a soft spot in my heart Jesus. but watching this as a grown-up you know out of everything i think this series sort of captures the tone and the feel of the original trilogy more than anything else to be honest even the prequels what do you mean, even the prequels? The prequels weren't close. Well, no, I mean, like, in terms of feeling like Star Wars. Yeah. The prequels were just like a CGI shit show. Yes, they were. Whereas this is like, there's a lot of heart to it. There's a lot of emotion going into it. It's not just George Lucas spaffing into a script for three <laughs> hours. 
Yeah, this is true. Um, so I, I, I guess I mentioned this uh, quite a lot, but I, I like when comedy is used within things that aren't uh, actual comedies. So yeah, I, I think it works quite nice in stuff like thrillers because it lightens the mood for parts where you actually want to lighten the mood. Um, and I think Star Wars has always done that. They've always had the thing of comedy. It just depends on whose hands you put it in as to what brand of comedy <laughs> you get. So the prequels obviously yeah. had this awful... Uh, childish humor with Jar Jar Binks and the poo jokes and whatever else and didn't really have much else going comedy wise like the originals had um like a lot of people don't remember it this way but Yoda when he's introduced but you don't really know that it is Yoda if you were watching it as you were supposed to like he is like a comedic little green rat thing that's just messing everything up yeah, he's like this wacky little muppet that's just turned up and he's giving Luke shit for being there in the swamp. Yeah. You know, he's, ni- he's nicking his food and beating up R2-D2. Yeah, like the bigger joke there is the fact that that is the Grandmaster that you've actually come to be trained by. Like, it, it has a nice little bit of comedy within it. Chewie, I guess, is somewhat funny when you first see him. Like, if you've been aware of Chewie for like nine films, it's not very funny when he makes his noise instead of speaking. But the first time you see that, it is kind of funny. Um, I think one thing that's always within Star Wars humour is sort of sarcasm and snarkiness. Mm-hmm. Like, the original trilogy had Han Solo being, like, wisecracking and things like that, and then the prequels had Ewan McGregor, who was always having, like, his little quips and his little jabs at Anakin being a bit of an angsty dickhead. And that's that sort of thing. And that was always that was always nice, because that was always there, and that sort of... That's, that was the constant throughout it, was that those little bits of sarcasm were just nice. Yeah, and I think the the new trilogy probably dropped the ball a little bit there. Like, it had a few droids that were a little bit funny. I mean, the droid that actually come to mind is the one from Rogue One, so that's not even right. But um, I think the Mandalorian kind of captured that a little bit nicer. Like, just because it's more fresh, because it happened in this most recent episode, there's a bit where... Um, uh, I don't remember what it's called. The guy who gives out the bounties is like, oh, do the, do the hand thing, do the hand thing. <laughs> and um, the child just waves at him. And it just it's that nice little, it's not over-the-top jokes. It's just these nice little moments of funny that's just scattered within. And I think The Mandalorian captured that, that the original series had a lot better than any of the other trilogies have done. But I don't think that the, the new trilogy needed that. I don't think the prequels should have even have tried just because of what they ended up with with Jabba Jabba Binks. <laughs> and I think the Mandalorian kind of nailed it. No, I, I agree. So a lot of the humor in the Mandalorian derived from the fact that it was very much physical humor, like between the Mandalorian and the child. That's true. And and the child does, I guess, kind of serve a comedic role. Yeah. A decent amount of the time. Yeah. Um, and a lot of that's down to the type of characters they are. There isn't much dialogue shared between the two of them. It's only when there's another character involved do, does the Mandalorian actually sort of speak to the child more? Other than that, he's just sort of silently dealing with him and just like physical frustrations, like the scene where he's confiscating the ball off him, like the bit in the cockpit of the ship, mm-hmm. things like that. Um, and that's really sort of a testament to the writing that these two very non-verbal characters can carry it, that these two characters can sort of carry that scene and add comedic value to it in a way that's... It's not jarring. It's still in keeping with the tone that this frustrated, rugged bounty hunter is trying to cope with this tiny green gremlin that's trying to dick about all the time. Yeah, and, and if we take that away from comedy just for a second, they like the two main characters of this is a puppet and 
a guy who doesn't show his face at all, so there are zero facial expressions. Yeah. And yet they still manage to communicate without talking very much, and you get the tone and the, the energy and everything that you would normally get from, like, I guess, two real human actors. Pedro Pascal did a really good job. Um, so, obviously, you only see his face once throughout the entire show. Yeah. You see that him as flashbacks, but that's, you know, that's completely different. Yeah, him as a child isn't overly helpful when it's obviously a big-ass grown man. Yeah. Um, but when it comes to, like, his narratives and things, he does so much and conveys so much just with his body language and just with his voice that it, it works phenomenal. It does. Like, you don't... Like, I, it took me a few episodes to even realise that, oh my god, I haven't seen this guy's face, and yet I know... Yeah. I know as much about him, and I, I care about him as much as any other main character, but I haven't seen his face. I don't know what this guy looks like. Yeah. Which is almost the exact opposite of, I guess, what they were going for with, like, the Darth Vader thing, where it was like, you don't get to see this guy's face because he's the big evil guy and we need you to be scared of him. And then you see him at the end and it kind of humanises him and whatever, and we already got him humanised with the Mandalorian without ever seeing him. And then when you did see him, it was like, oh, that's what it looks like. That's the guy that I care about. Yeah, like, the whole... Well, his whole story arc throughout the series was him becoming humanized by this tiny green puppet and that this was bringing out this other side of him. Up until that point, you know, he's just cold-blooded, killing people for bounties, just going about his life. But this sort of brings out that other side of him, which is really nice. So at that point, we've already learned a lot about this character and seen him grow at the point where we finally see his face. It's like, oh, wow, okay. Like, it's sort of, like you're saying, it's like the opposite of the Darth Vader effect. Mm -hmm. We already know enough about him from just how he is. Yeah, from actually showing us what kind of character he is and that he cares about this thing and I guess they um, start to uh, show you why he initially got attracted to it. Like, it, he sees himself in it because he was left in a very similar situation. He even got called the same as um, the child ends up doing with the being called like the foundling and like he feels like he should look after it and whatever and like we care about him without needing to see his face which i think is a really a big achievement so I, I guess just to make sure that this is said out loud you liked it a lot yeah yeah i like the series i felt like I've, I've a couple of minor grievances with it but as a whole i did enjoy it oh good me too like <laughs> One of my minor grievances with it was that I thought that Moff Gideon was played by Giancarlo Esposito, you know, um, thingy from Breaking Bad. Gust Gustavo Fring, yes. Yeah. Um, was that I felt his sudden appearance was a bit jarring. Like obviously there's there's moving pieces behind the scene, as with most stories. But I felt like they could have foreshadowed an external involvement earlier on in the story like in the penultimate episode there's a scene where the client says oh excuse me i've just got to take this phone call and he walks over and he starts talking to moff gideon on the little um hologram thing just before the big attack on the planet happens and i felt like something like that earlier on in the series like maybe not even show the character just hear them talking at the other side of the room just to add a bit more mystery and build up that character would have meant that when he suddenly turns up, it's like, okay, this is that guy that we've been hinted at existing. Yeah, you want to have the ominous guy, like, pulling the strings, and you don't get to find out who he is, because then the reveal is worth it. You can't do a reveal if we didn't know he existed. Yeah, like, um, so, for another Star Wars example, Empire Strikes Back, 
the first time you see the Emperor is in Empire Strikes Back, and even then all you see is him on a hologram, hooded up, you can't clearly see his face, although that depends which version of the film you watch <laughs> and which one George Lucas got his mates on. Um, and all you see is Darth Vader suddenly talking to this big bad and actually, okay, this guy that was whooping ass last film now has an even bigger guy to answer to. And just that could have added a bit more scale to the story. And for me, that was like the biggest thing that when it came to the finale, it was like, okay, these guys all know who this person is. Maybe if his existence was just hinted at a bit before this, that would have been a really cool reveal. Because it was a really great sequence when, you know, he lands out and he just walks out and he's flanked by all these stormtroopers. And that was such an impressive visual. Just this one dude stood there in the middle. And he's a really good actor. Like it, all the lines that he delivered, oh, yeah. it, like you felt like he had the control there because of the kind of character that he is, which is again why he worked so well yeah. as Gustavo Frank. Um, I I didn't realise that I thought this, but when he turned up, I instantly went, oh, so he's going to be the bad guy for season two. Like, I, I didn't <laughs> know that that's what I'd thought until yeah. it, like, it ended and obviously there's that final scene with like the big I guess it's more of a sword like an actual laser sword as opposed to like the lightsaber but either way when that happens I I went like alright yeah so he is the bad guy of season 2 I shouldn't have the episode before that thought that's the bad guy of season 2 I should have thought that at the end but I'd already thought that because it's like oh this guy has just been introduced now so he's not gonna like nothing's gonna end next episode with him because that doesn't make sense like yeah. he's just been introduced and it's this massive actor who's very very good so he's gonna have a major role yeah like obviously it's setting things up bigger picture wise because there is more to the narrative than just within season one season one wrapped up its own arcs and obviously it set things up for moving forward and while i understand that it just would have been nice to have this character like drip fed in a little bit yeah it would have been a lot nicer i mean I don't dislike what they did do. Like, one scene, as, as you said, one scene just added in just somewhere in the middle would have just done so much to build that. Yeah, so I've spoke about my view, so let's talk about how you feel about The Mandalorian now. So, how did you feel about it? Oh, it's very kind of you to, to include me. Um, <laughs> <laughs> so, yeah, so I really, really liked it. Um, I think it started out incredibly well. I like the first three episodes, I think. Um were really good like it pulls you in really nicely and whatever and i think the last three episodes were really really good like it's building towards the climax you know where it's heading and then there's two episodes in the middle where it it decides it's like a kind of sitcom style everything by the next episode is as it was at the beginning of the previous episode thing so here's here's why i think they did it so star wars is Almost every single Star Wars film is like an adventure film. So they're constantly going to new places, discovering new people, and it's to do an overarching kind of thing where they need to do all these things to actually succeed. So adventure films do that. They constantly go to different places to gradually pick things up. Adventure series do that on a per-episode basis. They tell one little story and then leave it and then tell the next one, and it's just kind of like that sitcom style of resetting every single episode. And I feel like they were like, well, we kind of need a bit of that. So we'll start out really strong and have this really cool, like opening to the story. And then we'll have some adventures and then we'll finish it. And I don't feel like they needed the adventures in the middle. I don't feel like they needed to go to that planet and save It felt those really farmers. jarring. And I don't, particularly think it needed i get it was building a little bit of backstory but they didn't need the the jailbreak 
episode either. Yeah. Like, they just, they felt, they felt like the other idea for a Mandalorian series where it's just that every single episode. But then yeah. they also made the, we're going to make a narrative-driven, like, the stakes are high kind of thing. And then they just put two of the episodes in the other thing. And it felt weird. Yeah, it felt like filler episodes in the middle of a series. Not that they were bad, but it's the fact that all of the other episodes had overarching stories. Like, there was one thing that happened over the space of three episodes, and then suddenly we've got two singular episodes that are very self-contained. As you say, they're very wrapped up by the end of it. It's all back to normal in the sitcom style. And it felt jarring to come from, oh, stakes are pretty high, this might not get resolved, to, oh, all right, it's back to normal then, okay. Just going to toodle off. Like, I, I enjoyed the episodes. I just felt like they could have... Like, I didn't mind the stories. They introduced characters that were brought back and were very relevant. But I felt they could have done it better. Yeah, like... Like, as, if, even if they'd have stretched it out a bit more. To be fair, they shouldn't have done those two. Like, that... If, if As you just said, like, yeah, they introduced some characters. They, they built a bit of backstory. They shouldn't have gone, okay, we need to introduce some characters and we need to do a bit of backstory. Let's do two adventure episodes. That shouldn't have been the conclusion that they came to. Yeah. But 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 they did. And it's fine. As standalone episodes, they are fine. But in the overarching thing, it's like they don't matter. Like, if we were going to discuss the story of season one, we wouldn't mention those episodes at all because they aren't relevant. No. They aren't part of it. And yet they are. Yeah, that's it. Like, other than the introductions of, like, um, Cara Dune, and I don't think anyone overly important is introduced in the jailbreak episode are they um doesn't do, do any of them survive at the end by the end of that episode because maybe maybe they'll come in just at another point um maybe i think that might have been setting up for season two maybe so do, no don't that doesn't there's two of them left there's the guy who he has history with and the guy who he has history with who um was the reason why he was in jail which is why there's that entire like yeah. Backstab. Um, aren't they both on the ship that then gets attacked when he activates the beacon? Yeah. So either they're going to come back in season two massively deformed with some form of injury from that, or or they're just dead and not in it. In which case, there was no point in that episode other than to build a bit of history on who yeah. the Mandalorian is and what he used to do. So just 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 filler episode then. Entirely a filler episode. It wasn't as bad as that one episode in season two of Stranger Things, where Eleven just goes well, off and just episode. yeah, the spin-off episode where it's just like, oh, let's just do something different for a bit. It wasn't that, but it kind of was. So, like for another contrasting example, like Dragon Ball Z, anime as a whole has an, an issue with filler episodes for whatever reason. Some of them, the animes are being made at the same time as the actual manga which means that sometimes the anime is ahead of the books and they need to slow down while let the books catch up and get ahead so they've got something to work with, which leads to pointless, dumb story arcs and mini-episodes. So, for example, there's one in Dragon Ball where, for no apparent reason whatsoever, Goku now has to learn to drive. <laughs> that wasn't what I was expecting you to say. Right. Goku can fly and he has a flying cloud he can sit on. He has no need for a car. And I think by this point, he can also instantly teleport everywhere. But he's learning how to drive. Yeah. And I think there's also, like, Dragon Ball Super, there's a random cooking episode, which has just become 
an obligatory thing throughout different anime series now. Like in um, sitcoms, there has to be a musical episode. Yeah. In anime, there has to be a cooking episode. Okay. Um, and that that was what immediately came to mind with these filler episodes. So it's not that it's not that bad. No, no, it's not bad at all. Mandalorian didn't take his driving test for for an hour, but yeah, no, he he didn't like take the child to a play area, then sit drinking coffee, and then roped into a game of cricket. I just had thoughts of that Rick and Morty episode where um, they take his dad to like the um, <laughs> the nursery that's just for other versions yeah. of his dad. <laughs> um, yeah, so it wasn't that. It, like they weren't bad episodes. I don't, I don't want to come across as though I'm slagging these two episodes off, but they didn't fit that's the issue is that they didn't fit with the overarching thing that they were going for and i i don't want to say this but i think that the overall series would be better and more cohesive without those two episodes in if they had like a longer series and they had more bigger arching episodes spread across and more adventures in between i think it would be less jarring okay i want just just i just want this to be known i don't want that i don't want more i want less (laughs) Like, I am not with Matt on that. I don't want a 20-episode American uh, series. I'm happy. I just want that. I just want that on the cards. That's all. I'm just thinking, like, as a compromise, if they insist on doing, like, these single adventure episodes, like, a way to make that less jarring would be to speckle them out in between bigger arching stories. Yeah. Like, do you know what it felt like? It sort of felt like what Doctor Who does. Like, when they introduce a new Doctor, they have a few episodes where they're kind of going, okay, here's kind of big story there. They've found their new companion. Here's them doing some big stuff. And then they do adventure, 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 adventure. Maybe for a few seasons they do that. And then they do something big and overarching again for when they're getting ready for the next Doctor. Yeah. It kind of felt like that, but just two episodes slammed in the middle. I am um, I I I could get too deep into the debate of Doctor Who's story arcs and things. So like the first series since the revival, it did like single episode, single episode, single episode, two parter, a few more single adventures, another two parter. That interchanging format could be one that would work with these type of adventures. But I think as it was, it did feel jarring having those two single stories within the Mandalorian. Um, there are some other things I want to talk about to do with the Mandalorian, but just just jump to season two just because you've i guess set me up for it that they could go that way and do the doctor who style format for season two because season one has this kind of character development arc that's now finished it has the um all the people that were looking for the child since before episode one that's kind of now been resolved by the big villain that um obviously is gonna proceed into season two yeah so they could do the more standard kind of adventure thing with the looming uh danger behind they could totally do that for season two um i just don't like the fact that for season one they kind of half-assed both well they didn't half-ass yeah. it they just did a perfect thing and then slammed two filler episodes in the middle but you know whatever i get what you mean. i feel like so obviously the story is it's like a space western the whole thing is that this is a cowboy story but it's done in the setting of space. And I feel like that's why those two episodes were there, for the sakes of telling those tropey cowboy stories with a twist. So, for example, uh, there's the trope of a stranger arrives in a town that's being plagued by bandits, and he helps liberate them. Mm-hmm. It's exactly what happened on that planet when they introduced Kara. 
and everything that but it was just in space it was star wars and and a jail robbery yeah and you know a jailbreak where they bust a criminal out of jail they've got history that kind of thing yeah this outlaw's already betrayed the other outlaw oh it's all this beef like i feel like they were so hung up on getting that point across that that's might have led to that issue yeah and like they didn't need to lean into that like it didn't need to do westerny kind of tropes like they could have just had a few kind of things that they've stolen from westerns and left it at that and it would have been fine like they didn't need to go full force on that speaking of westerns now that we're here and i know because i just don't remember you mentioned it at some point you said that you really really liked the very first scene of episode one because that's a western thing too yes so the very first scene like sold me on the entire show so just the way that it opens in like they're in a saloon the doors open and there's just a strange figure that walks in there's a big bar fight and then he whoops ass and walks back out but i liked that it it said a lot about what to expect from the show in such a brief amount of time the fact that he cut a guy in half with a fucking door (laughs) sort of was like okay yeah this is going to be a bit more intense than a traditional star wars yeah it was them kind of saying we're taking this a bit more serious yeah and for me i was just like ah like it was that that therapeutic essence of like okay they they have confidence to know what to show what not to show they know what they're doing here and evidently they did they they lived up to it yeah like um episode four originally had like a guy with his arm getting cut off and blood everywhere and then i think that's the only real time there's blood in star wars um you say that finn has blood on his helmet um during the first scenes oh of, yeah he does uh, doesn't episode he seven champs yeah which yeah, i'm surprised because that's a disney movie yeah but um you never see any of it come out of anybody um it's just on his hand and then he wipes it on a helmet uh, um, how, how convenient yeah so it's not actually someone bleeding which is probably where they get away with it so i have one i guess kind of quick question just because it's hypothetical and i want to see what your thoughts are on it do you think that they're going to name the child? Because they can't keep calling it the child, I don't think. But every, like, they can't call it Baby Yoda. They, I, I get everyone else's, but they can't call it Baby Yoda. Um, no. So, uh, unless episode one of season two, they go to the planet with his race on, and they're like, oh, that, that's Yoda's kid. Let's call him Baby Yoda. <laughs> like... <laughs> I, I really hope they don't do that. They cannot do that. Um, so, do you think they're going to give him a name? I don't know. Like, I like the idea that the Mandalorian might name him. Because, obviously, the um, the armorer, she was like, yeah, up until you find his family, you're his dad now. Suck it. <laughs> yeah. So, like, I feel like, especially considering that he was also a foundling, he might realize that this child needs a name. Um and obviously he has to raise this child. So I think he might name him. And But like, in the, I don't think that there's a canon name for Yoda's species anyway. Like the whole thing is like hidden in mystery other than Yoda and this one female Yoda species who was called Yaddle, I think, who was in the Phantom Menace. She was just sat there and didn't do anything. Okay. I think she just nodded along. Um, Like there's no other members of that species ever seen. So like... I, I don't know would be the answer. Mm. Yeah, that's just one thing that interests me because I, I would, I w- it would bug me if they kept calling it the child because 
they he's almost treated like a package at the beginning he's like not yeah treated like a real animal person whatever um but by the end he is and they still kind of refer to him as like the baby the child you know whatever like he's he's the little cute thing but they can't keep doing that yeah i'd like to think that the mandalorian would name him yeah yeah so i i, I don't know um but that's something that I, i've been thinking of I, I have another question for you and it might be a question that you can actually answer go on is Django Fett a Mandalorian? What? Django Fett and Boba Fett. Yeah. Are they Mandalorians yeah. or related in any way to that? Because they have the same helmet, they have the same ship, and they have the same jetpacks. So, from what I am aware, Django Fett and, by extension, Boba Fett, because they were technically the same person, because they were like clones, they weren't from Mandalore. They weren't Mandalorians by blood, so I don't know if they just had the armor, which I think it might be in the new canon. But I don't know if they were inducted into it like um, the main character of this series, but they don't, they've never particularly been seen doing any of the the religious side of it, they've just been seen in the armor that all the other Mandalorians were. And they were known as bounty hunters, which is what Mando is. So that does line up. Um, but at the same time, like, they were always just on the job whenever you saw them. Yeah, that's true. I don't, I don't think they are, would be my answer. Okay. So obviously the Mandalorian introduced the thing that you don't have to be part of that species to be a Mandalorian. So they could be. I've not read up enough of the new Boba Fett canon to know. <laughs> I'd like to think that maybe they are, and that's kind of where this ties in, and that there is just that yeah. little bit of, um, I guess, acknowledgement and tie-in to the other thing. It's not just set in the same world. These characters that you've been aware of for quite a while are actually kind of part of this thing that we didn't mention because it wasn't relevant. Yeah, um, well... I, it's funny you bring me on to that, because what The Mandalorian does a lot is it has the right amount of fan service yeah. for me. Yeah. There's just the right amount of Easter eggs that are lit throughout. There's an article that I was reading that up until this point, toilets had never been addressed in the Star Wars universe. <laughs> and in the very first episode of The Mandalorian, the alien that The Mandalorian captures from the bar is just basically like, dude, I've got to take a shit. And... <laughs> Yeah, there's the toilet on the Mandalorian ship, and it's like, oh, cool. It's just little stuff. Like, it's world building for a world that we're already familiar with in little ways, and it's showing us things that we've already seen in new lights. Like, for example, in episode two, there's the whole sequence where the Mandalorian gets back to his ship, and he finds that it's being absolutely raided by Jawas. And there's the sequence where he's jumping onto, like, the giant sand crawler, which is their big tank mech thing. Yeah, that famously shows up, and that's where um, Luke buys R2-D2 and C-3PO from, right? Yeah. Um, so up until this, the only points that had been seen was the sequences where the Jawas take R2-D2 and C-3PO, and they're inside it, and when they get sold to Luke. And it's shown in the backdrop of a scene in episode two where Anakin is looking for his mother. Uh, I, I, I wouldn't know. Um, I believe it's also in the new <laughs> trilogy, right, for a little bit. Um I think 
I, I might be wrong here, but I, I thought that there was a bit where there's almost a threat that they're going to do, like they're going to nick it, nick something and then don't. Um, I might be wrong, but I thought it was something there, with Rick. There might be. It it might be. But um, there's there's never been as much focus as, as there was in The Mandalorian. And now we have this giant sequence of this thing that was always a backdrop. You know, he's now launching a one-man assault on it to salvage the parts from his ship. He's trying to stop it and he's clinging on for dear life while beating the shit out of these Jawas. <laughs> And it's nice that this thing that's just, it was always just there, it was never a main focus point, is now a big deal right now because he is trying to get into it. He has got to get into that for the sake of, like, getting this child to the drop-off point and getting his money. And that's something that this show did quite well. Like, the episode that's just set on Tatooine, it's seeing things we've already seen, you know, plenty of times in the different films, just in a slightly different light, in a different time period, in different ways. And that's something that I think the series did really well. And it wasn't too heavy handed with it. Like they could have easily gone way too over the top. Yeah, 100%. They also, they also give weight to everything though. Like with that, yeah. with the, the big um, mech thing, it's just, it could have been, oh, look, you've seen this before. Like you've, you've seen it in like, you remember it? Like Luke bought them droids from it. And then they could have just shown it, done a bit of a flip flap, whatever, and then gone. But they don't like, there's a, he needs to get that back and there's a lot of weight yeah. put on it and they do that with everything everything feels like it has weight so they did that way better than the force awakens did everything it was referencing so there's that <laughs> yes, entire sequence there compared to the one scene in the force awakens where han solo's like oh so they've just built another death star and it's like yeah we did see the original films mate you don't you, you don't have to spell it out like the, the moment you lampshade it like that, it's like, yeah, um, it's kind of eye-rolling. They, they already and, built yeah. another Death Star. He saw the other Death Star. There was two Death Stars that he saw. Sorry. Yeah. <laughs> no, it's okay. Again, we, we will talk fully in depth about the new trilogy, and we can go. We can probably go a few hours just slagging it off. So we we will do that at some point soon. I guess the the takeaway is that this is better than the new trilogy, obviously. Um, but it's. It, I think it's made for different people. I think that the the new trilogy kind of had to be the it's for everyone thing, which I get the original trilogy and even the prequels weren't. Even if the prequels were trying to also include kids, don't have episode one be entirely about politics. Um, like the new one is obviously trying to be for everyone. It's doing fan service to people for the originals. It's copying the plot from the originals, but it's also light-hearted enough that kids can pick it up and it's got the cute little things so that you can yeah. buy merch and got all those things and i think that the mandalorian's not that i don't think it's made with kids in mind at all and that gave a little bit of freedom to actually be good <laughs> that makes sense yeah so like i think part of what helped separate it was like going on to the production ways was the amount of practical effects used in it so, like, the blend of CGI and practical effects was pretty perfect for me, to be honest. Like, even down to Baby Yoda being a puppet, they could have CGI'd that. The and child. Really... Call it Baby Yoda one more time and I'm going to punch you through the mic. <laughs> I'm just going to have to overdub it with, The child. <laughs> <laughs> um, so, yeah, the, the fact that they could have done The child as CGI and it wouldn't have had that cuteness to it i think like even down to ig11 the assassin slash nurse droid 
that was there was there was a robot built for that. They built it. They had a dude operating it, moving the arms about. And that it's the kind of thing that holds up a little better and gives the vibe yeah. of the originals because the originals did that and yes, like you don't. Yes, that's what right, it was you bringing don't me on to. Need to CGI metal because we know what metal looks like, and if it's if it's real metal, like that's going to hold up in twenty years time because metal will still look like that. CG doesn't. I mean, some films have managed to get it to the point where oh yeah, that holds up. I've got a feeling that the bear in Revenant is probably going to hold up forever. But if you just use practical effects, you don't need to worry about that. It will hold up forever. Yeah, like, so for example, in the prequel trilogy, there is not one physical piece of clone trooper armor that was made for that movie. They were entirely CG, and it looks dated already. Like, you watch Revenge of the Sith now, and it looks CG. You can tell it's CG. Where is this? There's like the scene where IG-11 smashing the stormtrooper into the speeder bike. And you can see, okay, that's. That I could see the bit of CG there as he's beating the shit out of him, and that's because <laughs> it's a giant robot smacking this soldier into a hover bike. Yeah, I think when um, I think when Mando lands with the jetpack for the first time, um, I think him landing is CG, and then it cuts to a wide, and the wide is then real because he's, he's yeah not he doesn't walk the same. They didn't get the CG Mando to walk the same way that Mando walks. And it wouldn't be an issue if they didn't <laughs> cut them together at the exact same time, but whatever. So, um, as we were saying, like, CG holding up. <laughs> and then we just slagged it off, saying that it doesn't. <laughs> but yeah, carry on. An example that I can think of is the Hobbit trilogy compared to the Lord of the Rings. Mm-hmm. Um, so it's quite a load of topic, but I'll stick to just the visual effects. So the original Lord of the Rings was famous for the fact that it had huge sets and intricate props built for it, whereas The Hobbit painfully overused CGI. Like, there's this famous story about Ian McKellen allegedly breaking down on set at this frustration. Uh, he's having to pretend everything, and he's just surrounded by green screens, complaining that this isn't why he became an actor. And if you watch those films, you can tell. The Lord of the Rings films that came out in the early 2000s look a damn sight better than The Hobbit films that came out in the early... Was it tens? Yeah, well, sort of, sort of recent. They were out. semi-recent. Yeah. yeah. Like, you can tell there's a lot of difference in how well a film holds up. And that, that is down to the choice of physical, practical effects yeah, and CGI. Like the, um, so, to give an example, like, the... Um, because your example obviously wasn't good enough. Um, <laughs> the ori- like, the originals for Star Wars, like, they use physical models for the spaceships. And yeah. They they used painting backdrops for a lot of the scenes. There's the scene where Han runs down the corridor chasing after the stormtrooper into the room that's just filled with stormtroopers. There's only like seven stormtroopers in that room and the rest are just on a backdrop painting. Yeah. Like and that was later digitally done by George Lucas as everything else in the film. <laughs> um but they used so many little tricks and so many workarounds because they didn't have that massive budget for the first film. And let's be honest, it probably looks better than what it would have been if they'd have spent all that if they've just spent a load of money on CG, it would actually look worse now. Yeah, exactly. If they've yeah. spent all that money. So that's one of the big things for me is what ties this to the original trilogy. Um, but while obviously on the topic of like production wise, could we talk about the amazing setup that they used for filming the scenes? I don't know if you've seen it, how it, the majority of the show was just filmed on a soundstage that was just primarily big LCD screens to make the backdrops and the environment. I have seen it. Because um, that, I, I don't remember how or when but um maybe even i saw it before i watched any of the series but um the like behind the scenes footage that i saw was uh like a 
I don't think it was a speeder bike, but it was something that size-ish. Um, yeah. With like a huge, um, like bendy screen. I think it. I think it's like. Yeah, it's like a curved background. Yeah, it's almost it. almost like a 1080 degree. Uh, 1080 no 180 degree um <laughs> like thing going around and i when i saw that was like ooh, that's probably not gonna look very good like that's gonna wear green screen you get rid of the green and then put in something that looks a bit like naff i was thinking okay so they're just gonna put the naff thing on a tv and then film that how is that ever gonna yeah. look better but i was wrong because it looks me it's like game changing i don't think you would have known unless you were told that I'll be i honest. thought it was shot on location yeah w- like watching the, the actual thing until you just said that then and i was like oh no i have seen that um like i would have guessed yeah so like so like uh mad max fury road that's actually filmed out in i think Nab- namibia i think it's out in a real desert in africa so yeah. you don't need to cg that because it's a desert in africa like that could have easily have been how they shot this but it wasn't. It was a big TV. <laughs> yeah, and I I just think the implications of this, like, this is game-changing. Like, the use of this. Obviously, they had, like, Disney funding going into this show because Disney wants some top-notch shit for their streaming service. But the use of this, the fact that it was done so good, and it's I don't think it's being shouted about enough. I don't know what else this has been used in, but I was thoroughly impressed with the final look from it. Yeah, so I think, like, there's always these moments where it's like, okay, this is going to change cinema forever. So I guess CG and green screens were that. There was a few films that kind of proved it. I guess, like, The Matrix, like, was like, oh, my God, we can make this look like real life, but we're doing stuff that you can't do in real life, but it looks Mm. men. Obviously, there was the predecessor to that, which was like, oh, we can make things look funny and that didn't hold up whatsoever and you end up with like flubber and that kind of stuff that's like and i I guess like there was a few definitive things like this is the future and then now we have the entire like marvel franchise and all all the things that stem from that which use green screen in pretty much every single scene but it looks like real life this is the next one of that like there's some there's ones that don't work like 3d where it's like this is the future of cinema and it's (laughs) rubbish and then yeah, they improve 3D like and it's gimmicks, still rubbish. And it's, yeah. And this, all this does is, the end result is the same. The end result is, it's a dude in a desert. Except, yeah. they didn't have to go out to the desert to film it. It's not improving the visuals, it's improving how easily they can make the visuals. Yeah, exactly. Which I think this is, isn't, is the big difference. This isn't overly changing an experience for the audience like 3D would be, like 4D or whatever the fuck Cine World are trying to do with like their roller coaster films. Yeah, yeah the ex- I think you hit the nail on the head there is that the experience is fine. We are happy with how we experience films. If you can yeah. make it easier to make, cool. This is it. The fact that they've got that system set up, the fact that they've nailed it with this series means that rather than, means that rather than pouring all that money into scouting for locations and filming on location, they can just do it on a soundstage and all that funding can be poured elsewhere. All that focus can go elsewhere on the show. You say that, but it is is expensive to build 3D sets, which I imagine is what they did. They they CG'd some sets, but it does mean that they can really dial it in. Like they can nail it, but they have to nail it beforehand, I assume. They they didn't green screen at all, I I guess. you, You might have to correct me on this, but like that means that they shot 
So, like him on the speeder bike, they shot that, and in the background is the like the soundstage with the huge curved monitor, yeah, with the environment being projected or just shown. Yeah, on as the far LCD. as I'm aware, they did have some physical environment with them as well, so there might have been some rocks and things they had yeah, to that interact. Would make sense. With. But but a lot of films do that with uh, green, green screen, screen anyway. anyway. They yeah. will have yeah, they they will already have that. So that's not exactly uh, any different, but if that meant that the 3D environment was already built and the shot that they shot, they can't change the background. Yeah. That does mean that the the 3D environments would have had to have already have been built and had to be yeah, finalized to and agreed that. upon and everything, which means that does that actually save money rather than just filming True. in the desert? True. It does it does mean that you can make things a bit more fantastical. Um, yeah, that's what I mean. Like, there's more freedom. It's a lot more liberating, and there's things they can do with it. Do you know what it does save time on? And I believe Go this on. is probably the the longest amount of time spent in any CG or green screen based film. Comping and doing rotoscoping. Yeah. So for anyone who doesn't know what that is, so rotoscoping is essentially what you would do like for photoshopping. If you're going to photoshop something, um, you would have to like cut around whatever it is. So say I've got a photo of Matt. Hi, I'm Matt. Um, and I want to put him on Mars. I would have to cut around Matt's um, like body and arms and hair, which is really hard to do. Um, and then like copy and paste it onto a photo of Mars and then do a bit of color grading to make it look like he's actually there. So... You, you match the light and you match the shadows, that kind of stuff. So with uh, green screen work, it kind of fixes that because you, instead of cutting around him, you just tell a computer program, okay, anything that's green, make it invisible. So you'll notice in most or all green screen shots, there's nobody wearing green. And if there is someone wearing green, they did blue screen and got rid of blue instead. So that is like the way that that's done then you've got people that make films like um i think david fincher is the guy who he he has like more cg in his films than you would ever believe because he does really bizarre things like if there's a tree in one of his shots but he he'd kind of like it to look a bit different like he wants to add leaves to it or he wants to add a few more branches he will cg leaves and branches onto that tree but he does it in every shot he just he's over the top with cg but doing it to like real life things like that, like um, in Go with the Dragon Tattoo, I think it is. There's a scene that mm. isn't like it doesn't have snow at the side of a road, and they CG'd in snow at the side of the road. <laughs> Wasn't relevant to the story whatsoever, but they did that. Yeah, like to do that kind of stuff, you have to rotoscope. You have to cut things out. You have to like really meticulously cut things out, and doing <clears> that within video is incredibly hard because you have to do it every single frame and generally it's 24 frames a second so if you've got like a minute that's so many pictures essentially that you have to cut around the software that makes it easier but doing this with the massive screen means you don't have to do any of it it's already there like the more that you can just shoot into the camera the the better that the job is of the people that are doing like the cg work and stuff which for the environment designers for the first time ever they're designing the environment first Like, they're going, here's Mm. the entire 3D environment that we have designed. We don't need to put your characters in it. You're going to put the characters in it. That shift probably saved a lot of time, which in turn saved a lot of money. So I've 360 on that. It's only been 10 minutes, but I've 360 (laughs) I I do think it would have saved money. So I want to talk just a tad about, I guess, all the people that kind of collaborated on this, because it was made by Jon Favreau, right? Yes. So the guy who made... 
uh, the first two Iron Man films. He made the new Disney Lion King. He made Elf. Um, he made Chef, which is one of my favorite like feel-good films. And now he made this. Like, I don't... Did he direct any of the episodes or did he just kind of make it, if that makes sense? I I thought he directed the finale, but that was directed by Taika Waititi. It was indeed directed by him. Um, and... Um, Bryce Dallas Howard um, did an episode, and it feels like yeah. it feels like a really cool like co- collaboration thing. Yeah, um, I, I liked it because he could have just done it himself, but he decided no, I'm going to get all these other fairly big names in to do it. Yeah, and it it worked really nicely. Yeah, like he he get he knows how to make big budget things. Now he did the Iron Man stuff. He he was a producer on the Avengers stuff, um, like. But at the same time, he knows how to tell a really good story, and he knows how to build really cool characters, which is obviously something that, like, Iron Man, granted, Robert Downey Jr. really helped with that, but, like, those films were probably, like, some of the best stuff that um, the Marvel, like, the MCU thing has produced. And he was at the helm of that. This is one of the best things that Star Wars has done in a long time, and he was at the helm of that. Like, it was good. It was good, and he put trust in a lot of other directors, and they did a great job too. Yeah, I would say that. And um, the Taika Waititi doing um, that last episode, it didn't feel like he had his fingerprints all over it, like it does most of the things that he does. Like it could have easily have not been directed by him, but it was good. So I'm not going to slag it off. Yeah, there was some of his like. I felt there was a bit of his wacky humor with the droid. Yeah. And also the, the one joke that I mentioned earlier with the do the hand thing and then he just waves at him. That was in mm. that episode. Um, yeah. But there's also a chance that he didn't write any of the episode. I, I don't know if he was credited as a writer on it. So there is only so much that you can do when you have a script yeah. done for a Disney product that <laughs> you're now doing the finale of. I don't think there is much wiggle room to just add a few New Zealand-based jokes in, you know? Yeah. Well, we're briefly on the topic of writers... So one of the episodes that we didn't actually talk about, one of the quote-unquote filler episodes, was the one where the Mandalorian's helping out this amateur bounty hunter. Yep, yep. Um, That was written by a guy called Dave Filoni. Dave Filoni was the man who made the Clone Wars series and the Rebels series and the new one, Star Wars Resistance. Okay. Um, And he's also written, I think he's written a couple of the episodes for the Mandalorian. He also had like a cameo in as a stormtrooper. Um, but this man is really beloved by a lot of Star Wars fans. There's a lot of grown-up fans that love the Clone Wars and what it's done for expanding the lore. And a lot of people are calling for him to get his own trilogy and to let him just make something. Big budget, big screen, because of how well he's done with his other Star Wars projects. He's made these other pieces that have just sold so well with fans. Fans absolutely love it. And they still love it now to the point where they brought Clone Wars back. Clone Wars got cancelled. And the last series is just tying up its loose ends now on Disney+. And this man's had such an impact on, this, on, on the entire franchise that I think it would be worthwhile giving him a shot at a trilogy. And I'm so fucking glad that I don't think they're doing the trilogy with the guys from game of thrones anymore <laughs> no i don't think they are they got dropped and then netflix picked them up for a lot of money um for something else um i don't know what but yeah no that would that would be nice um again don't want to slag off the um the new trilogy too much because we'll save that for an entire episode but like jj abrams specifically makes a lot of yeah. spectacle based things like he makes 
these uh like uh, cloverfield is a found footage film where it's actually a horror like monster film but you don't really get to see it which is a really cool like spectacle um super eight i guess is a similar kind of thing um he did the star treks which are uh i believe universally seen as star trek fans <laughs> as trash um so he did he did uh episode seven and episode nine and it kind of it doesn't feel like someone who loves star wars if that makes sense like episode seven was obviously just kind of a, a rehashing yeah. of episode four which is a really safe bet if someone like the guy that you just mentioned i apologize i've forgotten his name um if he was doing that trilogy he would have known enough about the world to have taken it in a new direction but kept the the ethos and the the feeling that star wars has but they didn't do that probably because the people that were at the helm yeah couldn't do that because they weren't embedded in it like um the guy who again sorry forgot forgot his name is we'll do that with foghorn leghorn as well can we go back can we go back so i guess the the takeout of all of this from just talking to you about it and also watching it is i'm excited to see what comes out of star wars now like i didn't like episode nine fine it's in the past the stuff that they're gonna do moving forward Seems promising. Like, they made The Mandalorian. It's awesome. They're obviously going to keep that going. <laughs> By no means was it a flop and they're not going to make season two. So, there's... They already had plans for, like, um, some, I guess, other trilogy films and that side of stuff. So, that they were planning that. They've already binned off Dave and Dan, Dan and Dan, Dan and Daniel. I don't, I don't remember what they're called. D&D from um, Game of Thrones. So, there's opportunity there for good stuff yeah well i think a lot of the long-term star wars plans changed because they were originally doing like a film a year so they had the trilogy installment then a spin-off then a trilogy installment then another spin-off because there was episode seven rogue one episode eight solo because people didn't like episode eight people boycotted solo which was an all right film it was yeah it was fine and because they boycotted solo disney went that's fine you're not getting your obi-wan film and everyone like as a the fan base as a collective just sort of went we fucked up here, lads. <laughs> yeah, a little bit. Um, and like, <laughs> it, that basically changed the landscape of Disney's long-term Star Wars plan to the point where they're now focusing more on Disney Plus and the fact that they're doing an Obi-Wan Kenobi spin-off series with Ewan McGregor on Disney Plus. And I think that it might have changed for the better. I agree. Like, these series give you the ability to elaborate more on characters than you typically would within... A single movie like i think the running time of the entire mandalorian series would be maybe two films worth i could be wrong yeah yeah they're thereabouts yeah and you could cut out all the the credits and the whatever that kind of fills every single episode yeah that amount of development in a series isn't comparable with a movie i think especially with like an obi-wan spin-off story a series would probably be better because you would get more substance yeah, especially since they've now kind of tested the water with that, and it's gone really well. They've tested new technology, they've given John Favreau, who hasn't touched Star Wars ever, um, an entire series. It, all of it has gone so well that, like, there's no reason for him to not just go, oh, this works, let's do that. Yeah. Whereas, obviously, they did the, the new trilogy, and it was like, oh, that didn't work very well. Let's, let's... I guess they kind of have to keep doing that, but at the same time, like, 
that they could not. They could just not do a big budget episode number film for Star Wars for a decade, for two decades, and just do this kind of cool stuff because everybody prefers it, I, I believe. So like, I do. Because of the impact that this series had, it's... I think that Disney are now like, right, okay, yeah, we're holding off films. We're focusing just on short-form media now, doing the series rather than movies, for at least for the, the short term. They've talked a bit about movies way, way down the line and about entirely new trilogies. There was talk of Ryan Johnson getting his own trilogy before The Last Jedi came out. Not much said afterwards. Probably not afterwards. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, I genuinely think that them, like, obviously they've launched Disney Plus now and they obviously want it to be a success. So them focusing stuff going on to Disney Plus makes total sense. I'm fine with that, especially because they made this and this was better than episode 7, 8 and 9 put together. And if that means that they're just going to keep doing stuff like that for Disney Plus, cool, fine. I am totally down with that. So... Um, we briefly touched upon before, like, the, the deep, expansive lore of Star Wars. Mm -hmm. And we're both coming at this from vastly different points of view, I think. Because I'm someone that's been balls deep so. in, like, the series since I, I was wee Ben. Like, I played a lot of the games as a kid. I read a lot of the comics. Whereas I feel like you've only, like, really... I've only dipped my toes in, like... I've watched all, except episode two, um, all the films. Like, I'm aware of Clone Wars. Like, I was aware that Darth Maul comes back in the Clone Wars. So when he comes back in Rogue One, it wasn't a, a surprise. Solo. Like, I'm... Solo, that's what I meant. That's what I meant. Yep. <laughs> this is how embedded I am, obviously. Um, so, like, I know bits. Um, like, I'm not just casual, but I'm only just a little bit more involved than casual and you're obviously as you said balls deep yeah so um going back to earlier you were talking about moff gideon climbing out of his tie fighter with his fancy sword late laser sword so buckle up so that is a lightsaber that is a special lightsaber that's called the dark saber so this lightsaber is unique it like the crystal inside it hones in and reacts to the user's emotions and feelings like it makes it stronger, it affects the blade directly. I can't remember specifically. So, like, this goes way back in terms of the lore. Like, this is deep cut shit. So, so because the whole Star Wars timeline is... So you know how there's BC, AD, things like that in, in the, the real world? With Star yes. Wars, the whole timeline is based around the Battle of Yavin in Episode 4 because that was, like, the first thing. So it'll be like four years before that, five years after, whatever. Okay, yeah. So yeah. like a thousand years before episode four, that lightsaber was made by the first ever Mandalorian who was inducted into the Jedi Order. When he died, the Jedi kept it at the temple as like a kind of memento to him, I guess. And then a specific sect of the Mandalorians were pretty pissed that the Jedi had kept this, like this treasured personal belonging of one of their most revered ancestors. And they like liberated it so they did that and used it to murder like a fair few jedi and it sort of became a symbol of power and leadership within this sect and it was always the leader that wielded it and led the pack with it and so there's like generations past and it's now clone wars time and another group of radicalists has split away from the general populace of the mandalorians because of how pacifistic the people had got they didn't agree with how chilled they'd been how laid back they were when it was there it was in their nature to be violent and aggressive 
and this offshoot were the ones with the dark saber. There was like a fair bit of a scuffle, which is kind of an understatement. And then Darth Maul comes and he becomes the leader of this rogue sect and he has the dark saber now. He pisses off back home to like his home planet, Dathomir, which is where the lightsaber stayed for a few years. So now it's like Empire time, Vader's here, Palpatine's in power, and the Empire's just cock-slapping whoever it wants. And at this point, the Sabres spent all of its time on Dathomir until a group of rebels, like the characters from the show Rebels, um, turn up and make off with it. And one of the characters is named Sabine, who is a Mandalorian who pissed off from her homeworld. She ends up being trained with it and entrusted to use it as her weapon. Sometime around then, they have the discussion about how they could use that blade to sort of reunite the Mandalorians because they've been a very shattered society. They've been very fragile. There's all these splinter groups and a lot of disagreements and how they can use it to repair a lot of the damage done by like Mandalorian Civil War, like the Empire, by the Clone Wars. And this led to more disputes and lightsaber fights, which in the end ended up with Sabine leading the charge and reuniting all the Mandalorians with the Darksaber. And the last place the Darksaber was seen was with, like, the main Mandalorian clans. And then ten years later, Gustavo Fring cuts a hole out of his crashed spaceship and starts waving it around like a cock. That's awesome. I like all of that, you big nerd. (laughs) (laughs) I spent, like, an hour trying to, like, cut that down last night as much as I could. So this... This little thing that popped up at the end of the show has massive implications for, like, the entirety of the Star Wars canon. That's really cool. Like, going back to the Old Republic before everything we've seen in the movies, this thing has existed and been an important figure now. And the fact that it ties in to the character of the Mandalorian means it's going to have some big implications in Season 2. Because this has always been a representation of their people, of their planet, of their species. This has been, like, their prize. And now this dude that took part in like a siege or something like that is just waving it around like his own personal trophy. I really like that it's, there's now going to be more of a personal beef between the two of them. So do you remember earlier when I said everything that they do has way more weight than the films have? Yeah. That, even though I didn't know it at the time, (laughs) is the cherry on the cake for that. So... Yeah. Rather than going, oh, we're finishing it, and oh, there's a lightsaber, it's, oh, we finished it, and there's a lightsaber, and by the way, this lightsaber is more important than any one that you've ever seen. Yeah, like, that is the, arguably, it could be the most important thing in that show, because of how big of an impact it's had on the entire Star Wars universe. That's awesome. Yeah. You big nerd. <laughs> <laughs> See, that makes me want to go and explore the um, the innards of the, the dark lore that is sat behind yeah like the fact that this thing's popped up across like two different tv shows because that's like in the clone wars series and in the rebel series it's big parts of it it's not just like in the back like there's a bit in thor ragnarok where hell is walking through a vault and there's just little ornaments there it's not that it's there's stories built around this thing that exists and has existed this entire time and all of a sudden now gustavo fring has it yeah and it's going to be nice to sort of fill in that gap. It is. And, and like, I don't want to be the, the kind of person that kind of uh, just requests fan service for the sake of it. But, like, having a lightsaber in this Star Wars series does feel good. 
Yeah. Like, it's fine without, because it is a spin-off, and it'd be fine with just laser blasters and stormtroopers and all that, but the fact that it now actually has a lightsaber, and it carries so much weight with it, is yeah, really exactly. cool. It's, it's not just a lightsaber, it's something that has significance to the story they're telling. Because I think if it was just, like, this dude's got a lightsaber, it could be a little bit heavy-handed. Yeah, like it'd just be like, thing. oh, yeah, we've just we've done this for you because it's Star Wars, yeah. and we felt like we needed to. R- r- rather than, and there's obviously someone on the writer's team that is embedded in it, unlike, obviously, what was on about J.J. Abrams, that has gone, we could do this, and it'd be awesome. Yeah. And there was probably some Disney execs that were like, what? <laughs> what, are you doing? What, what? What? Why is it white? Why is it black in the middle? Like, and it's just yeah. like, right, okay, sit down. Trust me. <laughs> like, another thing that ties into that, you know, the group of Mandalorians that saved a uh, young Din Jaren from, like, the, the droid attack on his hometown? Yes. They were part of a group called Death Watch, who were the Mandalorian sect in the Clone Wars, who had the Darksaber. Like, at that point, their leader had it, so it belonged to them. Oh, okay. And they were also in the Clone Wars show, that clan. So does that mean Mando is aware of it? I don't know. Like, potentially, because of how... Because that, be, that, that would be good to, to have it so that Mando knows what it is, so that when they explain it to the audience because they're gonna need to um it's not heavy-handed it's not it's not mando saying like oh what is it and then they're like oh this was embedded in your culture and whatever it's actually him telling someone who wouldn't know yeah. that all the things that you've just told me yeah not oh yeah darth maul had it in the clone wars they're not gonna say that <laughs> but like yeah darth maul he, he's, he was here for a bit yeah he's a nice guy he got yeah. cut in half at one point it was right good it was a <laughs> yeah then then he was a, a metal spider and uh yeah anyway (laughs) (laughs) so if this was a film i'd ask you to rate it but i'm not gonna um because i don't think it's right with series i don't think it works as well um but i don't want to go out of this not rating it so i'm just gonna say yeah it was like 12 out of 10 it was really good (laughs) completely break my system it was really really cool i really enjoyed it and it makes me more excited for star wars than the new trilogy did so that's off to you john favreau but i i i I always trusted you john (laughs) yeah for me like the fact that this this sort of it amazed me how well it captured the essence of the original films and i think the fact that it was done by fans done by people who appreciated the original films i'm not saying that jj abrams isn't a fan i'm not saying that all the people that worked on the other films weren't fans of the series i just mean that this was done in a way that this was for the fans this wasn't done to make money yeah that that sounds like the same thing but it's not no like this was done for entertainment this wasn't done to shit cash out onto mickey mouse's desk yeah this was done to make a really bitching star wars product rather than make a star wars product that's going to sell lots which sometimes is the same thing but with the new trilogy and the mandalorian definitely not the same thing like down to the fact they didn't use the child in any of the promotional materials until episode one aired no one knew about the child being in the series or existing at all and it's little things like that like they could have done that they could have marketed the hell out of it like even the fact that they didn't do that meant that disney didn't launch merch until now and the amount of money that they could have made then is baffling because the hype of fucking baby yoda being adorable yeah, as shit m- meme culture got it instead 
yeah, like it broke pop culture in a way I've never seen before. And the fact that they, that he had the ability to do that and to create this project and he could have lent into the skid. He could have done like, you know, the Ewoks shit like that, the Porgs, he could have gone overboard with it, but he didn't. He kept it focused on the story. It was entertaining. It was good. It had meaning. It had good action. It had good characters. It had uh, yeah. good cinematography. It had um, the right amount of Star Wars throwback and nods to older things while bringing in some stuff from deep lore that like we haven't seen in Star Wars ever on this kind of scale. Like It kind of seems like the, the stuff that's kind of embedded deep in the lore stays there. Yeah. That's now that's now changed. We're now bringing stuff around. Um, there's big actors in this doing mint stuff. There's um, guest directors. There's it. It just kind of ticked all the boxes. Yeah. One of the things I like as well is that it's bringing things not seen live action into the mix, like the dark saber. And there's a character from Clone Wars who's never been seen in a live action film who has been cast in the Mandalorian season two. Like cool. that character will make an appearance and that's like this character that appeared on a show that was airing on Cartoon Network like 2012 is suddenly going to be in this live action Disney Plus series. That's amazing. And the fact that they've pulled this off in such a way that they can do that and be good. It says a lot to the amount of work that went into this. And probably passion. Like, yeah, they care. Yeah. And like, as we've said... Like, there has been flaws, like, with the pacing, things like that. But I don't think there is a series one of a TV show that doesn't have teething problems. Yeah, I, I, as much as it's my, sort of my only complaint, I'm not that bothered. I don't think it's mint. I just sort of wish those two episodes weren't there. Yeah. Yeah. And even they are there, it's still entertaining. They were still fun to watch. They weren't, like, they weren't necessarily a drag. Yeah. No, it was, it was good. And I think that's the important takeaway from that. It wasn't a drag. <laughs> the end. Thank you. Good night. <laughs> Put that on the post. <laughs> but yeah, I again, I, I loved The Mandalorian. I enjoyed season one both times I watched it. And I'm painfully excited for season two, which hopefully will be out in October. Yes, I am with you in every word that you just said. And I hope to be a massive nerd like you by then. That was the Mandalorian. Yeah. Okay, that was it. Thanks very much for listening. If you are listening on Spotify, a follow would be very much appreciated. Alternatively, you can check us out in the links in the description and follow us on Letterboxd or Twitter. Thank you very much for joining us. See you later.